This is the O'Reilly Bots Podcast. I'm John Bruner. And I'm Pete Skamrock. Our guest today is Chris Messina. He's been a, a really active sort of man about the bots community um, for some time. He has his personality encapsulated in a bot called Messina Bot, uh, which you can chat with on Facebook Messenger. And he's worked very closely with Esther Crawford, who kicked off kind of the personal bot craze back in early 2016 with Esterbot. So uh, he's been very active in the community. And uh, having watched a handful of big uh, technological community developments over the last few years, he's focused now on bots. So we'd love to chat about sort of where we see bots going in 2017 and what you're excited about. Chris Messina, great to have you on. Hey, awesome. Thanks, guys. I'm excited. So uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, involvement in bots. What was the origin of the Messina bot? Yeah, so uh, it's it's pretty interesting. Um, you know, obviously, I've I've been on social media like for a long time, um, long time blogger, like you know, early on Twitter, all the different platforms, and um, you know, Messina bot sort of came out of actually what Esther had first done with Esterbot, which was kind of like her resume bot. You know, she had left her job and was kind of like eager to figure out something else, and um, she had sort of seen these platforms you know, come out. Um, I, I'd written a piece um, on conversational commerce in January, uh, exactly a year ago. And, um, you know, it was just very clear that like a bunch of stuff was happening in the space. And so she started out building this bot kind of encapsulating more or less her LinkedIn profile, but in a much more conversational, fun kind of way. Right. And if you think about like LinkedIn being sort of like this repository of static profiles that are not adaptive to the person that's, you know, looking at it. Um, it's funny how we replicate known, you know, media through the ages, you know, like the, the, the paper resume is still, you know, sort of like the, the, the LinkedIn model, right? <laughs> right, right. Uh, Craigslist is still like the newspaper ad format, right? It's just sort of in the, the digital version. And so once you move into the world of two-way bi-directional messaging conversations um, and you want to reveal kind of like what you're into or what you're up to, it raises the question of, you know, what kind of information should, should be put through there? And is this a way of actually presenting information that's more engaging and more fun and more sort of like time release, right? So she first built her bot to kind of I can answer that opportunity. Um, here's a number that you can text and learn about Esther. And that was all built on Twilio. That was all based on SMS. So it was very rudimentary, but she got a lot of engagement and people actually really responded positively to it. So, you know, having also worked in the digital identity space for a long time, I was involved with OpenID and OAuth and all this stuff back in the early social web wars. Um, I feel like it's like the Clone Wars, you know, like it's one of those <laughs> chapters that no one watched, but like it's part of the story. Right, um, right, right. The, the part wherein Facebook is going to uh, create sort of a, a taxonomy for the entire internet and we'll all put graph uh, metadata in our web pages. All those and things. Yeah, yeah t turtles all the way down. Um, so that was that was an interesting moment in time. But you know, a lot of those ideas are still waiting to be, I think, realized uh, in, in the internet um, or on the internet and on the social web. So it seemed like taking the germ of the idea that she had with Esterbot and then bringing that into the Messenger platform, which had recently launched, seemed like a great application of, of that platform. So we essentially took a lot of what you experience on you know, the web for like my personal profile um, or the various places where I post a lot of content and brought it all together in, it's not very conversational, but, you know, using sort of like the, I guess the functional components of the messenger platform to allow people to explore the stuff that I post. And then what I think is the most useful, I don't know, way of kind of conceptualizing or understanding these, this personal bot thing is that it's a unification of a lot of content that I post across many different channels that otherwise isn't unified for people that are just wondering about what I do, right? Mm -hmm. About.me kind of like did this a little bit, but it's a static you know, website, and then you're going off and sure, they sort of pull in like RSS feeds or whatever, but 
you're still sort of going to this static kind of dead destination as opposed mm -hmm. to something that feels a little more interactive. And so we pulled in stuff from my medium, from um, Product Hunt, uh, my events, upcoming events, podcasts that I've been a part of. So this will be in Messina Bot soon. Fantastic. Um, you know, et cetera and so forth, right? So you kind of get an overview of the stuff that's going on. And then uh, there's a lot of different directions in which we continue to build it out in terms of sending notifications. But it just sort of changes the dynamic and allows me to, in fact, I put it in like all my email signatures, you know, like talk to Messina Bot. And for a moment there, there were sort of interactive features where you could schedule uh, office hours with me um, and things like that. So there was a little bit of like an assistant, um, you know, concept uh, that we started to build out. It's interesting. I I just talked to Messina Bot for the first time before <laughs> before we just started now? recording this. After all this time, <laughs> yeah, I realized you know I I haven't talked. To, I talked to some of the other Ola bots. I think uh, uh -huh. I haven't talked to yours. And it's interesting. One an idea that came to me. It it you you mentioned this idea of uh, you know things haven't adapted to the new medium yet. So it sounds like a concept of uh, bot skeuomorphism. So when we <laughs> when we write the podcast notes, that'll have to be the section heading. So it's it's something right. interesting because you're hitting on something. Bot skeuomorphism is really a big problem because a lot of bots that people are creating. We joke about this around um, at my uh, startup at a, around the lunch table. A lot of bots are really just someone took a web app or took a form and just stuffed it in a bot. Yeah. And then launched it and said, "All right, here's my bot, everybody, go for it." Um, and and you know, probably eighty percent of the bots out there that do that, you know, that, that there are bots that do that, and and people, uh, those are the ones that people hate. Um, right. So the idea mm -hmm. of of not so the really really comes down to is this notion of uh, riding a little too close to what people are used to in the web, which is a very static presentation. Is that right? Yeah, I you know, it's funny actually, just to sort of like uh, build on your point, you know, Marshall McLuhan. Um, pointed out, you know, the media theorists from like the 60s and 70s, that all new mediums generally contain or become containers for the previous era's media hmm. uh, as it sort of becomes its own thing. And so, John, I know you mentioned um, in your annual review um, how you and I had been talking about Angry Birds sort of being yeah. like the first real break from um, the, the sort of conventional desktop era apps mm -hmm. um, for, for mobile, right? For touch-based inter interactions. So essentially you had a, a period of time, two to three years where everyone was just sort of taking existing desktop conventions, what they already knew and cramming into this like, you know, screen and trying to figure out, I mean, this is why Microsoft fell behind so much is because, I mean, even to this day, there's still like a start button, you know, that kind of doesn't really make sense. <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, and, and all the games right? in that era were like uh, Tetris, but played on the phone and right. in the same way exactly. you have like four keys and you're hitting, you know, one of the four keys mm -hmm. or whatever. And it's, it's, it's funny. I mean, this is a total uh, divergence. But anyways, I've been noticing that there are a lot of game makers like Sony, for example, and I mean, even like, you know, the the Mario folks, Nintendo, um, are bringing back a lot of these old classic characters. And on the one hand, they're embracing the platforms and doing things that are somewhat, you know, innate to them. Mm -hmm. But then there's a lot that are actually, especially in the Sega era, are just trying to resell the IP. They're sort of doing like slight modifications where they'll put buttons on the screen, like, mm -hmm. you know, pixel buttons, uh, right. so that you'll tap them like a like a console controller. And it's just kind of like, oh, I see what you're doing. And you're just trying to like, you know, harken back to this old world right. um, of the consoles and, and, and no, like do something original, do something that's actually like made for the platform. So, so for Olabot, so I try, I tried out, um, the Messina bot yeah. and you know, it gave me some information about your bio and I actually shared it, uh, with my team. I said, Hey, I'm going to do a podcast recording. Hmm. Uh, here's the guy you can go talk to his bot. Right. That's awesome. Um, and the thing that's interesting, so I'm curious, this is on uh messenger, right. Yep. And 
one of the things that I guess would be different. So if you didn't want to just translate your about me dot you know about dot me page to a bot and you wanted to make it adapt or your LinkedIn profile, right? That's a good point about LinkedIn, by the way. I used to work there, and right. I agree. <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, personalizing based on the viewer is not not a heavy uh, area of investment there. Everyone who um, everyone who yeah. looks at your page gets to see that you've endorsed uh, you've been endorsed right. thirty times for PHP development. Right. right. That's yeah. right. That's right. Uh, so, what could be different? I guess with Facebook, the thing that jumps to mind is like if I talk to your Messina bot, maybe so it should. I guess you can't do this right now. Is this correct? Can you get information about me who's look who's talking to your bot? Or if you is- if you authorize or log in with your Facebook account. Mm. But currently right now the, the messenger accounts are actually separate from your Facebook account. Right. So that seems like something they need to change, right? Well, I mean, you know, I've noticed and 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 this may or may not have anything to do with it, but it's interesting to see some of the UI um adjustments that Facebook's making. So for example, you know, Messenger is, is gradually starting to replace email in a lot of ways. And rather than being topic or subject based, you know, with threads, it's it's all person and individual based, I think, which is which is interesting. Um, what they've started to do with filtered requests, and I don't know if you guys get a lot of them, but, you know, this is someone randomly who either you don't know at all or is um, a friend of a friend. Mm-hmm. Now they'll show up in filtered requests and there's a way that you can start talking to them without actually adding them on Messenger. Huh. And what I don't know is if you add them on Messenger, if that is sort of like a an opt-in to share some information about yourself with that person, right? So most of these chat platforms have kind of a way for filtering, you know, unrequested or or mm-hmm. sort of unknown entities that want to talk to you, like Skype does this, where it's like request access and stuff like that. To have like a provisional um, conversation with someone. Yeah, that's right. Um, sort of like a disposable, you know, uh, node because, you know, it's obviously mm-hmm. a vector for spam. But you can imagine a similar thing happening with bots where a bot could actually make a request for certain information about you. And if it's in your Facebook profile, then it can draw from that. I mean, mm-hmm. the question is, you know, for, for us, you know, for people in, in the tech world, we tend to probably allow for a lot more connectivity between the accounts that we have, let's say, on Messenger and Facebook. But if I was a person whose first, for whatever reason, experience or primary experience of Facebook was through Messenger, and I didn't really do much with my Facebook account because I'm always on Snapchat, let's say, mm-hmm. um, what kind of profile information or control over my profile do I have in the messenger context? Or do I have to then go over to Facebook and start filling in all the data, all the details and all the stuff that, you know, that's sort of optimized for. Mm-hmm. Um, I think this is an interesting question for bot builders because uh, increasingly, whether it's payments or whether it's location or whether it's your media or files, how do you make that content or information available to bots in a way that's useful? You know, like for example, um, if I'm applying for a job, right, the LinkedIn case, like maybe I need to provide some credentials or some files. Mm-hmm. Is there a way for me to conveniently access, you know, my state registration or, you know, driver's license or something like that in a way that's kind of stored in my profile? Hmm. Well, right now it's not really possible. Um, but conceivably at some point you could have whatever kind of digital credentials are available and a bot could request them. And just like any other permission, you could say yes or no, I do or don't want to allow this bot or, or person or whatever to have yeah. access to that stuff. A, a little bit like the way that uh, Apple HealthKit works, for instance, yeah. right? Where That's you right. have this. Same, um, same idea. And, and or, this is... or, I mean, any of those permission sort of moments, whether it's at the OS level or in the individual apps, I think are interesting to consider. And so it's, can you have sort of a generic store that maybe even bots could fill? Like, I mean, just, you know, to go down this path a little bit, like, I mean, there's a lot of government bots that should exist, mm-hmm. ideally, you know, somehow validated or whatever, um, trustworthy, yada, yada. 
Um, but presuming all that stuff <laughs> is taken care of, I mean, if I do my driver's license registration or my taxes through a bot, um, mm -hmm. and then it sort of you know provides back some information, um, it should be able to be stored in some you know collection of of information someplace. Right. Right. Um, what, that kind of ties into you wrote a lot in the last year about conversational commerce. Can you say a little bit about that and yeah. <laughs> where you think that's headed? Yeah, sure. So conversational commerce is a trend that I started tracking actually in 2015. And I wrote a post in January of that year too, um, basically saying, hey, I think there's something happening here. And that was largely predicated on on seeing a couple different um platforms you know coming out um, one of which was path talk which allowed you to send text messages to businesses and then that would relay essentially to like a philippines like call center mm -hmm. and then that call center would then call the business with your question that you texted them and then they would reply <laughs> to you via text mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so although that sounds perhaps crazy and like full of uh friction in fact who wants to call a business and yeah. you know Either it's what what are your hours are like, hey, do you have this product? And then you're waiting on hold and like, you know, who who wants that? Yeah. As Steve Jobs would say. Um, so anyways, that was interesting. And then Fetch was another platform that was created around that time that allowed you to do shopping over text messaging. And it got some hype. It was on, I don't know, uh, maybe USA Today or something like that. And and that was interesting because they seemed to have some mainstream traction. And so it's like, well, what are these guys doing sort of one moving away from these conventional app models where everyone is building an app for their store and mm -hmm. no one's going to download it and two the the text messaging thing seems to be so accessible and so universal that that creates this whole pool of behavior that developers can actually build towards even though you know it's it's like all these things like and, so, and sometimes you find that um well developers entrepreneurs whatever overestimate how complex solutions need to be and in fact, typically very, very simple, stupid solution. I mean, mm -hmm. speaking of the hashtag, you know, uh, the <laughs> simplest right. possible My head solution. Right, right there. Yeah. Right. Could, yeah. <laughs> could, uh, <laughs> could be the thing that works. So it was like, okay, maybe there's really something here. And anyway, so a year on, um, I, I was like taking a look around again. And I was like, God, like this really feels like there's something happening here. Um, you know, Slack, of course, had come out and it was clear that bots were kind of like the way to integrate with Slack. So that was obviously a big uh, mm -hmm. data point. And then Uber built the integration into Facebook Messenger. So you can now request a ride within Messenger. And so suddenly you're noticing this conversation flow that's being augmented by the presence uh, and assistance of third-party services. So that was like, okay, all we need are those two ingredients. And suddenly people are going to be like, you know, uh, ideas just flowing. Um, and so I wrote a post basically saying, here's what, you know, could happen. Here's some opportunities in the space. Here's some challenges that I see, discovery being among them. Um, and you know, I really think that this is the year where we're going to start seeing a lot more brands, companies, and businesses showing up in the messaging and conversational space where previously you were only talking to friends and family members and people that you knew personally. Mm -hmm. Suddenly mm -hmm. it's going to be filled with these artificial, you know, accounts. And I, I didn't know anything about WeChat or about, you know, the official accounts and all the stuff that had been going on in Asia. And obviously like there's a lot of inspiration that comes um, from that direction now. But um, anyways, it's just been sort of fascinating to to then have ridden that wave effectively watching all these platforms launch all their stuff and to be i mean a year later to have a sense that we're still in the early early innings of this stuff i mean you guys have talked a lot about the ai stuff the natural language processing deep learning right um you know the the hardware improvements that are coming and the speed that this stuff is going to go at and and i think it's it's so critical right because we're if you think literally 10 years ago the iPhone first came out mm -hmm. uh, and it's taken 10 years for it to get to this mass penetration. And like the year before that, 
uh, Twitter came out and you know it's taken mm -hmm. a long time mm -hmm. to get to mass penetration. If you think about bots along a similar trajectory, maybe five to seven years, might be a little bit faster, but in terms of getting to good quality, you know, this is their, like a self-driving car shows up and you get in and you're like, hey, I'd like to go to blah, 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 mm -hmm. or whatever. That's the kind of natural conversation that you're likely to have in the future. Um, and so the question is, what's going to be necessary? What's the level of hardware capability and network connectivity that's going to be necessary in those vehicles to make that possible? Yeah. And that's when I think we'll start to see the stuff be like, oh, that's what this is all about. You're making an interesting point about sort of the the youth of uh, of this entire movement. And, and I think if you think about some of the enabling... Um, uh, trends, some of the enabling sort of societal characteristics beneath bots, like those are young in themselves. It's not just that the AI is young, the platforms are young, the interfaces are young. When I reflect on um, my expectations that everything is textable, that you, you should be able to like text your uh, barber to like reschedule your haircut, that's a really recent assumption. And I think the first time that I really felt like um, I ought to just be able to text this person, but I can't, this service sucks was like back in November or, or it was, it was, in <laughs> fact, I remember what it was. It was in September and I was in New York at a conference and a friend and I wanted to sit in my hotel room and watch the first uh, debate. And uh, so I ordered beer from a service that seemed reasonably modern and would like deliver beer from a bodega to wherever it was. And then they took ages and I was like texting them and they weren't replying to my texts. And I was like, well, now I'm screwed because how could I possibly contact these people except by texting this phone number that I've been given? It's not like I'm going to call this phone number, but right. but that was like <laughs> who, who calls? Yeah, anymore? but that was like the first time I really thought that, and uh, and that was only last fall. So that's that's the kind of thing that you know. It's not even just that the technology is young; it's that this feeling that you ought to be able to like message people is pretty young. This is this is another kind of maybe holdover skeuomorphism from the web too, right? So do not reply email addresses, <laughs> right? So it, like communication was always very one way with websites and uh, especially big companies, uh -huh. they couldn't really even afford customer support. And so it was kind of like a black hole where your you know emails would go unless you're paying a lot for something. Mm -hmm. uh, the I consumer mean, it's, web. Yeah. It's really amazing. Um, we also tend to not have a great way of, of synthesizing lots of different trends or shifts that are sort of like going on, right? Like, I mean, as companies have moved to lower their overall costs by moving things to like the digital realm. Mm -hmm. You know, they've sent home a lot of people that otherwise would be doing service previously, or they've outsourced customer service to someplace else. It's like a cost center as opposed to a differentiation. Mm -hmm. I think Apple is one of the few that sort of sees it as being part of the product. And therefore, when you call and it's an automated service, it's actually quite good and they'll get you to a human very quickly. And those humans are usually pretty adept at solving your mm -hmm. problem. And granted, they have a good margin so they can work with that and make that happen. But you know, if you think about the whole picture, um, a lot of companies did move to this very like consumer caustic approach mm -hmm. to communications. It was, you know, taking, you know, again, the broadcast model of television or radio where you can't talk back and then moving into a bi-directional channel like email. And then saying, oh, but don't send us something back. Like, that's not what we want. Yeah. <laughs> and so then we can put you on the web and then like, we'll put a form up and you have to like answer all these questions that previously customer service would ask you. And now you have to like prove that you're not a robot. I mean, it's like, yeah, you have to add your <laughs> you own know, metadata to your, to, your, system, to your question you know, by like come. answering those questions. Yeah. 
There was someone posted a really funny image of a uh, an email that they got from United Airlines when when the new uh, CEO of United came on board, and they sent out an email that was like the subject line was something like "We are listening we're, to we're our listening customers." To and at the bottom of the uh, of the message, it said, <laughs> "This is an reply. unmonitored email address. Do not reply." <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so, yeah. so you. It could change with uh, the messenger platforms. What, um, there was a startup that Path acquired, right? That's the first one that comes to mind that felt like they were like riding on this trend. You know? Yeah, what I'm that, was about? that was talk yeah. to. That was talk to, and that was so that was Path Talk, right? That was one of the ones that really sort of. And I had a, a few experiences with it because obviously there was a question like for those uh, you know of your listeners who don't remember Path. Path was kind of like the social network for 150 people um, that was created by Dave Moore and the guy that built you know the first iteration of Facebook's platform. And so they sort of saw a lot of adoption and growth in um, in the Asian markets, and you know they did stickers like very early, like all this stuff. But they also acquired Talk to, I think, because they saw that merchants and businesses in Asia were actually available over text messaging. It was very common, very normal, right? So in some ways, the fact that a lot of this technology, the formative technology of the internet, came out of you know the West. Um, and gave us email and gave us document sharing and came out of academia and came out of the military and came out of, you know, these, you know, sort of slow top down organizations. And then you go over to Asia and, you know, they kind of started with mobile messaging. Mm -hmm. You know, they started with like, you know, minutes. They started with that kind of expectation or experience of messaging being the core experience of and, and also because of the way that the internet is filtered and controlled there um, messaging became probably the best channel to actually connect with customers connect with their friends in a way that wasn't censored mm -hmm. because it's private and so the norm there evolved in a very different way than sort of like the open and free public internet of of the west which in some ways has actually held us back in terms of the adoption of a lot of these technologies today and i think this is um i don't know if it was dan grover um, who's now at facebook was at wechat before I, I feel like he tweeted something about this where we're, 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 because he lived in China, you know, and he's very familiar with that audience in the U S specifically, we are just not very mobile first. There's a lot of people who are experiencing or using the web through the desktop. Um, even as people have these mobile smartphone devices, their cognitive kind of grasp of what's possible, this idea that you should be able to text message or message any business, whether it's on messenger or whether Skype or whatever, just doesn't really dawn on, you know, yeah, it's this, it's, I mean, it's a classic kind of, uh, adoption problem where you anytime a new generation of technology tries to supplant an older generation the places that are really highly developed with respect to the older generation are going to be a little bit right slower I, I i am a microcosm of this i mean i am so comfortable in front of a desktop computer that there's a lot that i do on my desktop that um everyone else does on their mobile phone and andy morrow who's been on this program and uh, and as a friend of the uh, of the community, gives me so much <laughs> shit about uh, how I you know race to my desk and like open my laptop to write back to a Facebook <laughs> message. Um, and it's yeah, so, it's just uh, uh, so speaking much of uh, dinosaurs who can't keep up, uh, uh, you mentioned Twitter uh, and uh, the hashtag. Ouch, <laughs> yeah, uh -huh. uh, sorry, I just had to get a get a dig in. I I love Twitter. I'm 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 a huge addicted to Twitter. Yeah, uh, but. The one of the things that came to mind when uh, you know we realized we we're going to have you on the podcast, uh, one of your claim claims to fame is uh, inventor of the hashtag, and I'm really curious to get your perspective because you were so immersed in the Twitter world. It seems like a glaring miss from t from Twitter that they like they there were bots on Twitter going back what like like eight oh, years, from the nine years from the beginning, right? Yeah, ten years. 
And so I remember at like some open web summit talk, like I think Brady Forrest and I were talking about like the, the rise of social bots. And this was like seven years ago or something. And I was thinking Twitter back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what do you think happened? Like, why why did they not, uh, mo- you know, jump yeah. on this? And, and the, they missed messaging and they missed bots, really. Right? And at the same time, yeah. Facebook uh, was was squashing every bot that they found at, at the time, uh, you know, seven mm-hmm. years ago or so. They insisted that Facebook would only be a platform for real humans using their real names. Twitter, as a result of coming out of very much kind of like a you know developer context, mm-hmm. right? I mean, Jack Dorsey, you know, now CEO, was an engineer um, working on it, and of course, Evan Biz came out of selling Blogger to Google, and so they're you know in the world of sort of publishing, right? So they sort of took the blogging phenomenon and behavior tried to do podcasting for a while. Also, mm-hmm. they were 10 years too soon um, and realized that, you know, there was something simpler that Jack had stumbled upon, which was like sort of like the status update, which ironically also comes from instant messaging. Mm-hmm. But you could sort of build a platform that's just status updates. And so that was kind of like the the, the, the progression. And also around the early days, um, you know, network connectivity out in the world was terrible. So you know, you couldn't really go anywhere without, uh, you know, AT&T 3G was just so slow. You didn't want to go on the web for anything. And so the mobile websites that existed were pretty poor. And of course, a lot of people were using Blackberries, So they had these hardware keyboards. Mm-hmm. How do I, how do I even put it? I mean, everything just feels so two bit and like one dimensional back then, but like, you know, everything was slow, everything sucked. And uh, you just didn't really want to go on the internet that much. And so Twitter came along and said, look, we can actually make it possible for anybody to publish using their mobile phones, just using a text message, mm-hmm. just using mm-hmm. SMS, hence the 140 character limit. And in some ways, once again, you know, the medium, the format of SMS dictated a lot of Twitter's progression or lack of progression over time because they've sort of vehemently stuck with that. And so every time you wanted to attach an image to a tweet, you'd have to link to something mm-hmm. else and you couldn't embed it. It took years and years for them to figure out how to actually embed photos, not to mention allow users to upload them directly to the right, service. Right, right. And then, and then not have the link count against out. your uh, your your Correct. character limit, which is <laughs> only only happened right? like months ago, right? Yeah, exactly. Right. So anyways, there are all these limitations, all that stuff. And so you asked about, you know, why did the Twitter bot phenomenon not really take off? And there are a number of reasons, I think, uh, that are pretty straightforward. One is that a lot of the bots came out of the IRC world. So bots first really got their start there, if not even before that. I mean, automated uh, things that you can talk to through messaging channels in computing have been around since the beginning, you know, like even going back to like uh, Engelbart's like first demo. I mean, there's a lot of kind of like, you know, computer automated stuff. I think the problem though is like, maybe it's not a question of imagination, but a question of, you know, functionality and accessibility and product development and, you know, just user behavior, Mm -hmm. right? I think we're finally at a point where there's enough people who are using messaging in their day-to-day and they find that the most, you know, delightful, engaging, you know, way of connecting with people through their mobile device. And there's enough people now that have these mobile devices. I mean, remember, like we're coming out of an era where not everyone had a mobile phone. Now everyone does. I mean, there was a period where I was growing up and I didn't have a mobile phone. Like, you know, you call people with a landline. Um, so now, now that everyone's got these, uh, now you've got like, well, what do I do with it? Well, you start messaging friends and then you start sort of going from there. And I guess like, it may fully be like sort of like the Asian influence um, on computing where as these public companies need to continue to expand, they're looking at Asia as being the con- Asia and India specifically as being where they need to expand to next. So they've saturated the web market that's available. 
And now they've got to grow into these other contexts. And in those other contexts, messaging is the way that people use computers, mm -hmm. right? So Twitter never seemed to have the same type of growth imperative. I mean, obviously they have because they're a public company and, and they're out of Silicon Valley, but they didn't seem to be quite as aggressive at modifying the service to fit into these different contexts. I could be wrong, but that's just my sense. My sense is that Facebook is a lot more nuanced in how they roll out Facebook in different contexts and places and the mm -hmm. features that they show and use and so on, um, the things that they test. So as a result, Facebook was seeing the stuff that was going on in Asia, I think, you know, a lot more closely than Twitter and Twitter just never really, you know, invest in its own bot right. platform. It, it's funny now that now that you mention it, like Twitter, I, I feel like Twitter is about conversations, but maybe it's closer to a text version of podcasts where it's <laughs> large, you know, some small number of people are having conversations and everybody else is just listening to them. Right. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's true. Right. I mean, like we, we already know that like 1% of people create most of the content on social media, 10% comment and the rest are sort of observers, or at least that's kind of like the, the distribution. And so the funny thing is, is that I think a lot of people experience Twitter and Twitter has gradually grown into more of a broadcast platform, more for news, which ironically, if you don't recall, like there was a time where Facebook switched its footing where it was all about just your individual status updates, what your friends are doing, baby photos, cats, stuff like that, to being about the news. Mm -hmm. Suddenly, Facebook became a place for finding about news, which seemed to be a competitive answer to Twitter. And now we're in this interesting moment for Facebook where uh, original content posting is trailing off precipitously. And so they're rapidly moving into video. So they're constantly riding this wave of like, what is the next kind of communication platform? And Twitter has done a couple of things, whether it's like Periscope or now Vine apparently is dead today, um, you know, where they've tried to sort of innovate on the platform, but they just, I don't know, for whatever reason, it, it's, it's just not, I don't know, it doesn't, it hasn't melted into people's minds and lives yeah. the way that Facebook has. Uh, Pete, Pete made right? a good point uh, about the, the sort of broadcast nature of Twitter. And I, I wrote about, um, this back in 2013, I scanned a bunch of a uh, few million Twitter accounts and and sort of looked at how many followers they had and so on. And the median Twitter account has a single follower or did in 2013. Wow. Yeah. If you looked at the Twitter accounts that um, posted in the 30 days before I scraped their profile, that those accounts had a median of like 60 followers. So if you have a thousand followers, you're at like the 95th percentile of Twitter users. So it really is... Um, this and then you have like you know Justin Bieber with like tens of millions of followers. So it's this it's this incredibly skewed environment where it is a handful of celebrities speaking at people, and then everyone else kind of having maybe having little conversations among each other. But I think the other thing that Twitter kind of missed um, by allowing people to have facetious usernames uh, and and by at least in the tech community you know being kind of a a workplace uh, or like a professional conversation platform more than a family conversation platform. They, they didn't develop the same sense that Facebook did of, of being a place where you can catch up with your cousins, you know, and see what they're up to. So so there really just isn't there isn't even that meaningful kind of low level murmur of conversation on, on Twitter. So the ecosystem, like to to synthesize this, it sounds like we're saying that the ecosystem for bots like superficially existed on Twitter, but the conditions weren't there uh, for engagement with those bots like they are on Facebook Messenger. Right? Well, I think the, the question is, what were what were the best bots doing with 140 characters on Twitter? And I think the other problem was that given the openness, so I mean, there's several different like ways to, again, slice this, right? Where um, one of the other problems is that a lot of the bots that were on Twitter ended up actually being very abusive or spam bots, right? And so 
that's one of the other challenges that I think J- we've seen. Jumping on hashtags is the main thing they do, right? They, right, exactly. Like they see something trending and that's thing you know. I mean, so it's free advertising. It's super cheap, whatever. It's, it's not great. And so in that case, Twitter in some ways has given bots a bad name or a bad rap. Um, we've seen this. There was recently a bots bill that was signed into law that's about the negative. Oh, the ticket scalping bots. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, of course, we're just talking about automated scripts that just do stuff, but we call them bots. And, you know, we don't really differentiate, at least in, in um, policy, um, what's what's, you know, good bot, bad bot behavior or what are the ethics of bots. Um, but because Twitter is a primarily public context, I think that creates a very difficult context for the types of conversations that you're talking about that really resonate for people to to occur. In other words, it's one thing for us to have public conversations. We feel confident and proud to have public conversations and for anything that we say to be sort of open to public scrutiny. But for the vast majority of people in the world, I don't think that that's what they prefer. Yeah. And so, or at least they want to know kind of, you know, does it work this way or does it work this way? And so, you know, you have kind of either public or private accounts and in Instagram, you have public or private accounts. And I, I know a lot of people, or at least in my experience, because I own the Chris username on Instagram, I get a lot <laughs> of that mentions for Chris. And these are not very sophisticated users uh, of Instagram. And so it's fascinating to see their content where they're mentioning me and the way in which they use Instagram. And so there's sort of security through obscurity for Mm -hmm. users who are less sophisticated, where adding the additional layer of privacy actually makes their accounts get less likes. So they're not going to do that until suddenly a bully shows up and then, oh, well, now there's they know me my name and now I have to go private. So there's sort of like that binary behavior. But if you imagine like the experience of uh, on Twitter, the bots that are going to interact with you are probably going to be spamming you, mm-hmm. you know, because they don't they're indiscriminate. They don't know who you are. And because it's not a private platform, there is a reason why those bots would, of course, send lots of messages out to just anybody. So that's the other thing that's interesting, I think, about the the messaging context is that it's private first mm-hmm. and it's bi-directional first. And in that shared channel, now you can have sort of a, a meaningful and somewhat discreet conversation. Mm-hmm. And so there's not as much sort of potential for shame or embarrassment if you're talking to a bot and it's sort of, you know, jokes like Tay is probably an interesting example, right? Here's like a bot that like ran amok on Twitter because, of course, there's a lot of assholes on Twitter. Uh, And when you have assholes and you have a public, you know, arena where those assholes can become very visible, those assholes are going to become very visible if they can. Whereas... uh, Tay was also released, I think, was it on Kick or was it on... um... Well, recently on Kick. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a new new version. It's called um what is it? Uh, it begins with a Z. John? Zo. Yeah. Zo. Yeah. Zo. Zo. Yeah. Anyways, well, right. But they're like Tay. The actual Tay code was released on one of these like private uh, group channels, and I think it was Kick. And I'm not talking about Zo. And the behavior was completely different, mm-hmm. right? So same code, same ability to manipulate this bot into saying the things that you wanted to say, whatever that might be. And it turns out that pooping in your own backyard just isn't really <laughs> what you know people want to do. So. That's the other problem, I think, with bots on Twitter um, and why I think Twitter has sort of had a more reluctant approach because bots in the public space end up behaving badly because they're very cheap to operate and they can do a lot of damage. Whereas you look at what Twitter has done with their direct messaging platform and they're providing a way for customer service reps to respond to users that message these Twitter accounts because of the publicity or the public aspect of those Twitter accounts. But they're really not doing automated responses because I think they need to have a differentiator from, let's say, like Facebook, where you have to sign up for a Facebook account and go through that whole like you know process or whatever. Yeah. Um, that's the know. that's the main use case for a lot of people who are basically the the Twitter counterparts to the Instagram people that you're um, that you're checking out. Uh, I have this plugin in my um, in my inbox called Reportive that shows the um, 
all the you know public social media accounts affiliated with whoever wrote me the email that I'm reading. And so I'll often click on their Twitter account and see what they've been up to lately. And so many people have a Twitter account, have like five followers and use it only to yell at American Airlines or, or like Comcast or something. Right. right. So this is the, right. you know, the, the, the counterpart. Support yeah. Case. It's, it's, these are essentially private people. They don't want to speak in public except in this one use to case complain. where they feel like they have a lot of leverage by speaking in public. That's right. That's right. You mentioned podcasting before like Twitter started out as podcasting. So there's another parallel here, which is kind of interesting. So you, you, uh, at, at Uber, you worked on this, uh, the, there is an Uber bot, right? Where you can, uh, integrate with Facebook messenger. And I think it's on a bunch of other platforms now as well. Yep. Um, and you can order an Uber, uh, you can say to your Amazon, um, echo, you know, order me an Uber. And, uh, it's very convenient, especially if you're, you know, brushing your teeth or something. Right. Mm -hmm. And like, More is like there putting your shoes on or putting your uh, shoes on? That's a voice recognition challenge if there, <laughs> if there ever was one. So where I'm going with this. So I'm, I'm curious, like, this is another area of debate when it comes to bots. Um, and I think now you're seeing Amazon Lex and a number of these other, uh, I think Google as well, Google Home, uh, you can write with API.ai and you can deploy to voice, deploy to text. And so you're, you're seeing this convergence of voice and text. So you are working on uh, this convergence. What's your perspective? Like, uh, is there is is voice going to be like the audio of bots uh, or, <laughs> or is that is that going to be the winner? Well, I mean, in the sense that audio failed, uh, probably mm -hmm. not. Um, mm -hmm. But I think to your point, the way that I tend to look at this is I tend to look at, you know, as, as I sort of try to articulate in my in my post on conversational commerce, the, the, the thing that's new to me is is the conversation or at least we've had conversation, but it's not been um, sort of deployed broadly through services in these different contexts. And of course, the Amazon Echo gives us this whole new type of computer that is just there listening to our utterances and allowing us to, to talk to it. Now, I, I don't have a Google Home yet, unfortunately. If anyone wants to send me one, feel free. Um, <laughs> but I imagine from a conversational perspective, the thing that's interesting to me about conversation from a design and behavior perspective is that it's, it's continuous um, and also asynchronous. So if I start a thread with my Google Assistant in Allo and I'm like, you know, talking about a flight that I need to book, you know, for, for two weeks or whatever, and then I come home and I want to pick up that conversation with the Google Home, that should be possible because the Assistant is there. So conversation to me is really about mode switching in the way that's most appropriate for the user's context. And, you know, when you think about the Uber case from a different perspective, you know, one of the challenges is that you've got people... Uh, in an ecosystem that are very focused on their task at hand. In fact, they're moving around like 2,000 pounds of, of steel trying to sort of come to mm -hmm. you. And if they stop to text you, that can be very dangerous. So they need to be using the voice modality, right? They need to keep their eyes and their hands engaged. But from a, a rider's perspective in the Uber case, you know, the last thing that you want to do is be talking on the phone to like your driver. Right. It just, I mean, it's not great, right? So being able to move between those modes, I think is something that hasn't really been built yet, but is the kind of thing that makes sense to go uh, content in all of these contexts. Related to this, uh, your, your last comment, you mentioned conversations being continuous and asynchronous. And I think that's uh, it's a pretty important point that I think most people, when you talk about like they're building bots, if they're building it as if it was a web app, 
then that's very much like, okay, here's a session. The user has arrived at the website and I need to figure out their intent. And, you know, it's all about guiding them towards this perceived intent, right? Now, with a conversation with something like the Echo or in Slack, in a Slack channel, Mm -hmm. there's all this chatter and it evolves and it moves and a conversation doesn't actually have a clean start or end. And sometimes they interleave and things like that. And so it feels like bots, that's maybe one of the big challenges right now with bots is that uh, we our heads are still stuck in um, a very cookie cutter kind of app mentality, mm-hmm. and now it's totally fluid, and you need to adapt to almost. You, you could be asked almost anything, right? I mean, it's not just that, right? It's. I mean, I think you made a very good point. One thing, if anything, humans seem to be pretty good at is filtering and sort of constantly whittling away at things. Like the way that memory works and the way that we forget things is actually useful in some ways to allowing us to evolve and to sort of maintain plasticity. Whereas a bot could have essentially what you might consider an infinite session. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's always learning and it can always go back and replay its history of, of sessions. I mean, you think about like Westworld sort of having this you know, <laughs> personification of this idea. Um, and how does it decide what's the most important thing? Like what if I started, uh, you know, five requests for, um, you know, airlines or flights that I never concluded mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they're just sort of hanging out there? You know, and so when I ask, hey, what's the latest on like, you know, that trip that we're working on, the bot has to sort of know intuitively, you know, big asterisks, what the hell is intuition in a a bot sense, you know, what it is that I'm talking Mm -hmm. about, right? And how does it negotiate with me to be like, well, is this what you mean? Or is this what you mean? And then how does it not go through like a laundry list of everything that I've ever talked to it about that has to do with perhaps that topic? Um, and so I think you're totally right. And the way that a lot of bots do approach things right now is kind of like this, you know, single session approach where it's like, okay, you have an intent, let's satisfy that intent and let's have you move on. Whereas the way that I interact with people in my life, I mean, this is sort of my point about going between modalities, you know, I'll have a conversation you know, with Esther, um, you know, face to face, obviously, and then like she'll leave and then we'll be texting. And then at some point later, she'll call (laughs) me. These are all the different, you know, we'll do video chat at some point, like all these different modes are kind of available to us. And yet it's a sequence of experiences. And I also know how to tailor the content that I'm presenting to fit the mode that she's in. If I know that she's driving and, you know, we're calling on the phone, like I'll probably keep it pretty brief. But if, you know, she's like walking somewhere or she's on vacation, I don't know, whatever. And we're like texting, maybe, you know, so um, all of those little subtleties are things that, you know, bots don't quite have situational awareness to yet. And I think those will be things that are that will come and there'll be more and more APIs that sort of allow people to build on the context of a person um, to be more appropriate and situational. Yeah, sort of understanding contexts keeps reminding me of another early web idea, the, you know, small pieces loosely joined, uh, mm-hmm. which is actually one of these early like the greatest hits of like, you know, 2006. Yeah, exactly. Or 1996 or something, right? I, I mean, <laughs> sure, right. And, and that actually is one that uh, that that seemed pretty clear cut. And I, I'd say in the last 10 years has not really microservices turned out. Well, people talk about microservices, <laughs> but, um, you know, the, I, I think in, in 1996, the belief was that, uh, you know, your experience on the web would be just divided up into into thousands and thousands of, you know, websites that do exactly one thing. Um, you know, so maybe if you wanted to look up the uh, the history of a neighborhood in San Francisco, you would go to some enthusiasts lovingly maintained website about wow. that neighborhood rather than going to Wikipedia, which is what we do. Or, you know, you could contact people through a variety of different means that were appropriate. Now, now you just use email and Facebook. So there's been this consolidation. We yes. didn't wind up with a lot of small pieces loosely joined. Uh, do you think the same is going to happen with with bots? I feel like this, this sort of gets into like your question around God bots. Mm-hmm. Um, and 
it's 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 a deeply on the one hand disturbing and on the other hand sort of uh, opportunistic question right because we live in this great world now which you know is moderately great uh, and it has been at least for you know some people if you look at the numbers from Apple about the App Store and the amount of billions of dollars that you know they've you know distributed mm-hmm. to developers there's a question as to what these godbots will do uh, either on a pay to play basis or you know where uh, the google assistant's like hey you know you want to get a rental car well hertz is offering a discount i can tell you about mm-hmm. that or the first result is that actually from enterprise mm-hmm. you know so like how how will that mediation happen because we're no longer dealing with like a visual you know context i you know and it's it's interesting like um I had a conversation with um, this guy, Chris, in Pittsburgh um, a couple months ago, and he is, I think he's legally blind. And so we were talking about the how different operating systems are actually better or worse prepared for this move towards voice computing based on their accessibility functionality mm-hmm. and features. So, I mean, this is probably an experiment I should try, but I've never actually tried Google um, as a non-sighted person. So I don't know what Google does when it announces ads or advertising, mm. but I imagine that it might go through a similar process if you're asking it to, let's say, give you flight information, right? It can be like, oh, here's one that's sponsored by Virgin, right. but then here's you know United or whatever, presuming that's even a use case that you'd you know, use this thing right. for. Um, and it, it makes the right? ads much more uh, integral. I mean, assuming that... Uh, you know, what you have is some sort of screen reader that's like reading the contents of the screen out loud. And, and websites are embedded with a lot of metadata to to make it easier for those screen right. readers. But the uh, because it takes this website, this web page that's very rich and multidimensional, and it makes it a linear thing. Result number one for your query is, right. uh, and maybe that's an ad or maybe it's not. But, you know, anytime you do insert an ad there, it it plays a much bigger role in what you're absorbing from the page mm. than it does when it's just off on the side and you can sort of glance at right. it. And you sort of have like ad blindness, you know, like literally from a visual perspective, right? right? So anyways, I just, I wonder what the competitive marketplace will be like um, because the idea of, of a sort of skill store, you know, going forward, whether that's, you know, something that you install into the Echo or into the Google Assistant or into Facebook M or whatever it is that they come mm-hmm. up with or into your car feels tough. That feels really tough. It feels unlikely to be something that a lot of people will want to engage in. Instead, they want to speak what they want as though they're talking to a genie and the genie knows the way to solve their problem. And the question is, who gets paid for solving their problem on the other end, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know, unless it's a premium feature. So, Chris, I actually think of you as uh, a human version of this uh, <laughs> bot discovery genie. So for, for our listeners may not know, but I think you're one of the top users on Product Hunt, right? Uh, this is true. This is true. Uh, you got didn't you got an award recently? Yeah, I, I, uh, I mean, I, I'm, I'm both proud and sort of shy to admit that I, I'm the community member of the year uh, for Product Hunt, which just means I spent an inordinate amount of time um, posting things and commenting. I mean, and, you know, it's not like I got paid for it or whatever. It's just like it's a passion project in a way to see kind of what's trending, what's going on. Mm-hmm. And for me, I mean, to your point, I've I've watched all the different bots get submitted and get hunted and um, the conversations that have ensued. And and it's super interesting, right? Because because if you're sort of in the bot space, but you're only watching what's happening in like the Facebook chatbot group, or you're mm-hmm. reading, I don't know, uh, O'Reilly or Chatbots Magazine, or like you know the various resources that are out there, you may actually miss some of the things that are coming out, you know, from different um, you know places or contexts. Mm-hmm. So for me, I, I guess the thing that I would just sort of add to that is probably you know maybe around the middle of the year, June, July. I saw just a spike in the number of bots. Like mm. previously, there are all the apps, they've been websites, products like that, you know, very clear kind of things. And suddenly, you know, you're seeing a lot of stuff for Messenger. You're seeing a lot of stuff for, 
even like you know kick and and um you know skype and and so on so that that to me sort of showed that kind of groundswell of of activity in a way that you know is actually tracked to different products mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, so what's your looking into your crystal ball for 2017 and synthesizing all this product hunt data? Uh, what, we're, what do you think is happening? Uh, um, is it are our bots still accelerating? Are they plateauing? Like, what, what, what does the future look like on product hunt for bots? You know, one of the other interesting things, um, I forget who who said this, but it's a good point, which is that a lot of the people who are building bots are not actually the people who have the needs for the bots and. The in fact, the overlap of people who are building the bots with the people who have needs for bots is is probably close to zero. Mm-hmm. And um, again, that might have been Dan Grover, but you know his his read on this, which I think is interesting, and also in terms of what I've been seeing in terms of what Facebook's been experimenting with um, with Messenger, is that there's an opportunity for local merchants and local commerce to really embrace messaging in a big way to like either automate or lower their costs um, to deal with things like reservations um, or you know, to provide uh, sales updates or receipts to basically keep a channel open with their customers. And if you move out of kind of Silicon Valley and, and think more about you know, middle of America or places like that, there's a need for those merchants to really be able to connect to their customers in an efficient way. And email marketing to me just feels kind of, I mean, I know it's still very effective for some reason, but it feels again like it's that one-way channel that doesn't inspire the two-dimensional or two-way, um, or maybe three-dimensional, but two-way conversations that great products um, result mm-hmm. from. So I'd like to sort of see more of that happen. Um, but those things might be so discrete or so dispersed that they'll never end up on Product Hunt. In other words, we'll just have sort of a bunch of people, you know, in malls or you know, small towns, sort of rolling out, you know, bots. Um, but you know, we'll also see some content bots. We'll see more service-oriented bots, but it's 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 tough to see. What I'm probably most interested in in watching closely is what's going to happen at F8 this year. You know, that's the, the Facebook be, developer conference. That's right, um, which I think is coming up in April. So they first pre-announced the Messenger platform, and then last year they launched the Messenger platform, and now we've got a bunch of bots. I think a lot of the bots that they launched with 100 Flowers, Poncho, or whatever. Um, I don't want to call them flops, but oops, I just said the word. So you know. <laughs> They're interesting sort of learning points, and it's like, what has happened in the last year, and what are they going to launch that that's big and significant? Mm-hmm. I imagine payments is a big piece of that, um, and there's got to be something else coming too. So, Have you? Uh, they also launched M. Uh, was it one years ago or or two years ago now? Well, I wouldn't call it launch. Well, they they announced I mean, it exists. Uh, announced the they acknowledged the existence of of M, uh, and since then, I have never met anyone who has ever um, used M. Or or gotten through the you know gotten onto the beta list or anything. Mm-hmm. Have you have you seen it at all? What I have seen, I've seen in the source code mm-hmm. um, of Facebook Messenger. And the one thing that's interesting about it is that there are two modes for M, as I understand it. And one of those modes is a chatty, suggestive mode, and one is like a more like stay back and um, only speak when spoken to mm-hmm. mode, which suggests that or or maybe it doesn't suggest it, but I think there's other things that I've seen that imply that bots will be part of groups in the future, perhaps rooms um, on Messenger. And that raises like a super interesting question when you think about um, being able to, well, I mean, Slack obviously has this now, but from a distribution and discovery perspective, bots in group threads that can proactively suggest things to people in those contexts will create this amazing opportunity uh, for people. So I, I, think, that, I think the key word you said there is threads, right? So Facebook, mm. 
like the news feed and groups like they, it's threaded by nature and same thing with uh, Microsoft Teams is coming out and that's threaded. Yeah. Um, and so mm-hmm. I feel like Slack, one of the complications, it may be I actually think it's really good for the product in some ways to not be threaded mm-hmm. um, from an attention perspective. But for bots, it's very tricky to navigate um, versus Facebook or um, some of these. Yeah, other but platforms. I mean, you want to be able to treat bots like you treat people in a mm-hmm. way, right? And you can add people to different threads, like you said, or, or groups or rooms mm-hmm. or channels or whatever you want to call them, just groupings of, of you know, people um, because they, they provide different, well, they provide different relevance and it's also about setting context, mm-hmm. you know? So again, if we're talking about the trip case and we're all planning a trip to go someplace, now the bot has the context of the people who are all working together on that trip, as opposed to me having to talk to the bot and be like, nope, not that, not that trip, not that trip, not that trip, <laughs> you know? Well, Chris, it, this has been a fantastic conversation. Um, if listeners want to find you online, where should they look? Yeah, so I, um, I'm on Twitter as Chris Messina, and uh, you can also find my Messina bot um, on Facebook Messenger. Either search for Messina bot or go to m.me slash Messina bot, and all my different social channels are kind of like represented there. Uh, also, if you talk to Messina bot, there are two cool features that you should check out. One is my cocktail recipes, so just send it the martini glass, and it'll send you uh, my <laughs> recipes. And then the other is um, an Uber integration, where if you send uh, the car emoji, um, you can actually get recommendations based on your destination uh, from my Foursquare tips. Huh. So especially in San Francisco, if you want to figure out where to drink, where to you know, go do stuff like that, um, my bot will send you recommendations whenever you take an Uber. That's really cool. So that uses, that reads from your current Uber trip rather than just calling a car, which is what everyone else has been doing. Yeah, exactly. So it's actually, again, it's using that context of the fact that you're going someplace. I kind of call it like GPS plus plus, right? It's kind of like where you're about to go to inform the information that the bot provides you. So it's like super relevant, super useful, very actionable. And in fact, we just made some tweaks to it. So it's, it's a little bit better than it used to be. Interesting. Well, thank you so much for coming on, Chris. It's been great. Awesome. Thanks, guys. If you enjoy listening to the O'Reilly Bots podcast as much as Pete and I enjoy making it, please consider leaving us a review. Visit iTunes or SoundCloud or Google Play or Stitcher, wherever it is that you listen to the Bots podcast, and let us know what you think of it. Also, reach out on Twitter. Pete and I are available there, and we'd love to know what you're thinking about bots. And finally, remember to send in a proposal for the O'Reilly AI conference. That's our next conference with a lot of bot-related programming. Use the link in the show notes for this episode, or just Google O'Reilly AI conference. The call for proposals ends January 18th. We'd love to see you there. For the O'Reilly Bots Podcast, I'm John Bruner. And I'm Pete Scamarock.